help if I turn that on. Hey, uh, uh, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to or turn your book, uh, your Bible on to John chapter 15. As you look in your scripture, you're going to see that that uh, we are coming um, to a general close of the book of John. We're going through at a good pace. We really are. We're not trying to rush anything. We're not trying to, we're under no pressure. Um, even though Shale wants to preach certain chapters and he's selfishly driven like he is. But um, uh, anyway, he, uh, we're, I'm going through John 15 uh, today where we could really stop and talk a lot about these particular verses. Don't forget, we have community groups going on. And one of those community groups, about 30 of you go to that on Tuesday nights, meets every two weeks, is strictly sermon-based discussion. So you get around and talk about the ideas, talk about what, what went on and have any questions. Because there's no doubt some of these verses are going to spawn a question. And so what an opportunity to, to do that. So um, anyway, if you'll look with me in uh, John 15, uh, verse 1, you're going to see a verse that opens up right away. In verse 1 it says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now let's stop right here and explain in case you weren't here last week or you're jumping in not sure where, where we are in, in Scripture. This is a con- continuation of a discourse of what's gone on in the upper room. And so in the upper room, Jesus is meeting with his disciples. Again, we have to remove imagery that's in our minds of just this, um, this colorful celebration brought to a, um, a Da Vinci-like status where people are at a table passing bread. And it's just what's embedded in our mind in the upper room. Imagine the, co- the confusion, the chaos that's going on. Twelve men who have seen things that they never thought they would see, who are being pursued, who are unsure of what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm leaving you. I'm going somewhere, but you cannot go. They've sacrificed and thrown away everything that they have to follow this man, and now he's leaving. One of their own has just sold out Jesus and the rest of the party. Now keep in mind that we often think, what did Jesus think when he was washing Judas' feet? What was Judas thinking when he, when he got the 30 pieces of silver to turn in Jesus? But have you thought of the 12, I mean, or the remaining 11 men? I don't know about you, but, you know, when you talk about what it means to identify and grow close together with people. When one of you drifts away, it's a wound. It's a hurt. For one of them to abandon you would be a pain and a, a deep hurt. For another one to sell you out to the point where you would be arrested and possibly executed. Can you imagine the rage of what is going on? There's confusion. There's chaos. And this is walking now out of the upper room into the outside area. And Jesus makes this statement that says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. For us, we think if we're not careful, we're going to get a picture of each just making an innocent illustration. Okay, for teaching purposes, he's going into what we call a metaphor. You, when it come, you come to a metaphor in Scripture, you treat it like a metaphor. That's what it is. You don't expound on it to the, well, well, I wonder what he means by this. You take what Jesus means by what he's applying to the metaphor, and you leave it right there. There's a lot of people who say, oh, well, the, the branch in particular means this. Stop. We need to be very careful when not adding word to his word. So we're going to teach this metaphor, but he's speaking to the disciples. 
And the disciples are well aware of what a vine looks like. Okay, so what's interesting is the vines were everywhere. I don't know about you, but if you ever, you grew up in Florida, we have what, muscadine grapes. Anybody have muscadine grapes? We're proud of them. You eat them. They taste good until someone from California comes over, tastes them, and spits them out. They're like, what is this? Well, the reason we're proud of them is because they grow in our Florida sun. And the reason I can grow them is because they thrive on neglect. And uh, they're easy to grow. You don't have to fertilize them. You don't have to do anything to them. But the people in Israel knew what it meant to look at a vine. What this vine represented. That for a vine dresser to address the vine, it had, that person had to go through two or three years of training. And understand where you, where you cut things off at, where you grow them. I remember growing my first orange tree in my neighborhood. I remember that I got this immediate growth right to the middle of the tree. And I told my neighbor, Pearl Harbor survivor, you know, I remember this, this older gentleman, I said, Mr. Jensen, what do you think? Look at this, look at this. He says, you got to cut that thing down. I was like, what do you mean cut it down? Cut that, that's called a sucker. It's coming up right out of the tree. It's going to pull the nutrients. You got to cut that out. Well, it's the best looking part of the tree. That thing's grown, grown five feet in two days. Oh, isn't that some, and he said, and that's why you got to take it out. Your, your, your fruit will be awful. And so they understood what it meant when you had to address a vine and dress it. And so Jesus comes up with a statement and says, I am the true vine and the father is the vine dresser. Now what's remarkable is this. He didn't just use that metaphor to simply say, well, you've seen what a grapevine looks like. This is who I am. The Old Testament spoke of Israel being the vine. And so they knew that. Um, uh, there was a coin. Um, the Maccabeans, I think, they're the ones who put a vine on the coin that represented Israel. Herod's temple, there was a, the doors given over the, to the Jews to show who Israel was. And there was a vine that represented Israel. And everywhere you look in the Old Testament, and now Jesus, in this metaphor, in this time, the short time to just to kind of encourage his disciples and explain things, look, look, looks over at them and makes an I am statement. When you think about this, all the I am statements, he says, I'm a vine. I mean, it seems kind of anticlimactic. Of all the things you could compare yourself to, of all the things you could say you are, but they knew exactly what he was saying. I am the vine that you've always called Israel. And my father is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now, he says, I've already, you're clean. You are clean. For what I've done, you're clean. You are fine. You're with me. But there is a part of you that's going to be needing pruning. And when you talk to anybody who's ever walked in any sense of their Christian faith, they will tell you their greatest moments were when you lost something. When God took it away, or all of a sudden it was gone by consequence, or whatever or circumstance, whatever you think. Whenever you were at the lowest point, is where God was seemed to be the closest. Oftentimes, you know, but I've seen Christians, I just remember Christians get up at a pulpit, somebody who's been a believer two or three weeks, and watch him just talk about the excitement of Christ and excitement. And the whole time I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I know there's going to be a crash, and I'm going to be there for you. 
you know, being a Christian doesn't just equate with a simple, there's just no, no utopian place we find on this earth walking around in elation. There's an understanding that if we don't trim things from our life, God will. And he's going to do it. Again, you go back to kind of an agrarian analogy here. When you look at, at oftentimes growing fruit, sometimes you look at a tree and say it's going to have too many buds and you start clipping the buds. Why? So the intensity of the fruit is better. And so Jesus is saying, I am the vine, my father's the vine dresser. And then he's going to start using a word that is going to be used 11 times in just a handful of verses. And here we are in verse 4. It says, abide in me. And that word abide is what he's going to concentrate on. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we've got this breakdown. The vine is Jesus. The vine dresser is his father. The branches are who? Us. We're the branches. We're the branches. And the branches, and what's interesting to know, the branches cannot exist without the vine. And so Jesus is saying this, I'm not just showing you that you're a part of me so that you're tethered to me, that I can show you as a chore or discipline you in every step. It's not that I am giving you the opportunity to be a branch to my vine so that you can have the privilege of knowing what life looks like. And when I think of... um, when I think of the, the illustration that we're constantly given over in our two, our two ordinances of baptism and Lord's table, when I sit there and look at that and I think what God did to allow us just to participate in. I mean, again, you think about if I look at a football player and I watch what that guy does all his life. And you look at, you look at somebody watching football today, later today, you're going to think that guy has since five years old trained for that moment. And one day to get to a Super Bowl and be so elated to say, I made it, I won it, I did it. And the, the, the bruising, the practices, the two-a-days, the forsaking things, the, it, all that training. And then to win that Super Bowl trophy and to simply say this, I want you to have it. Can you imagine? Caleb, I want you to display this in your home. Now, first of all, you can take that in two ways. Caleb, you could take that as, a, as far as, you know, you blush almost to think, you know, how could you do that? How could you go through all that and give it to me? Like what God does in salvation. And Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. But you can also take that in a way of putting it on your mantle. Everybody walks in. You tell everybody, look at what I have on my mantle. I'm not sure if you're aware, but I won the Super Bowl. Morgan is sitting there saying, Caleb, you did not win the Super Bowl. No, I won the Super Bowl. I have the trophy preposterous as that is, think about how many times believers walk around with a chip on their shoulder saying who they are. How many times you've been around Christians who cannot wait to share who they are without ever taking the time and patience to listen to someone else? We're quick to give these quick answers. Quick to say, I'm saved. Quick to say, I know where I'm going when I die. Almost like a badge of honor. And so when Jesus is saying this, I want you to abide in me. He's saying, I want you to celebrate with me. And I'm going to abide in you. Verse 8. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, very important to understand, this is a metaphor. Anyone who ever starts preaching, well, you see what you, you can lose your salvation, you can be thrown away into the fire. Stop it. Jesus is speaking very simply to say, just as grapevines are taken away in their incapacity to grow anything and used as kindling, so is what happened to Judas. You, you go to Israel, you can't, some of you guys have been to Israel a bunch. I haven't even gone into the Holy Land in Orlando yet, but I'd like to. <laughs> you know there's no souvenir you can buy made out of grapevine wood grapevines. You can't do it. It's worthless. The only thing you can do with dead vines on a grapevine is use it as kindling. That's it. Jesus says, if you don't abide in me, you're going to be thrown away like a brand. Judas, he he lost everything. He had an abundance of life and he threw it away. Verse 8. But this is my Father glorified, that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, I'm not going to ask you to turn back in all the verses, but there is a progression. And when you go to look at it later, you'll see a progression. It says this, the grapevine that I'm comparing you to bears fruit, trimmed to bear more fruit, pruned and cared for and abiding in me to bear much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. There's a progression there. Again, the disciples are understanding this. They're thinking, well, I get this because I see it. I see it visually every, every day. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. He doesn't say, by the way, I, you know, I love you so much. He says, as my Father has loved me, I love you. And we have worn those terms out as far as love. We know when we walk in scripture, we see the three levels of love and we talk about, but we, we, say, we say love in different capacities. Jesus is saying this, as my father loves me, the same manner and the same amount in which my father loves me, I love you. I mean, he's giving them a picture of comfort. There's no doubt they're going to need it. They're worried. They're confused. And so when he gives this over, he, say, he, he goes on to, to say, if you want to be connected to God, it's not through Israel. It's not through tradition. It's not through religion. It's through me. Through me. He says this, I am the vine. I'm the perfect vine. And through me, the life of God flows. I'm the vine. I'm the perfect vine. And through me, you will experience God. This is why Jesus is continually saying, in order to know the Father, you must know me. But in order to, need, to know what it feels like to be loved by God, you must be abiding in me. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I've heard that word joy since I, was a new, since I was a Christian. I can never get it. To be honest with you, it sounded like a very feminine term. I was like, can't we think of something else? You know, I'm thinking, you know, I would watch a grown man get up and say, I have joy. And, uh, you know, and then I would hear people say, no matter what, I have joy. And I'm thinking, what do you mean? And uh, then I would listen to somebody say, no matter what God takes away from me, no matter what I lose, I have that joy. And I'm thinking, what a narcissist you are. You know, you just have no feeling. How could you? 
And then I realized, man, the difference between happiness and joy. If you're happy, it's because of something going on in your life. Take that thing away, the happiness goes. Emotion goes. Y'all know as well as I do, we deal with emotions. Some situationally, some organically. There are emotions that set you down, that set you down. And and thank God we do not live in a faith where emotions are based on everything. But there's a joy. It's different. I was at at a service for Homebound. It was a Christmas service years ago. And... That was, there were 12 ladies that were picked up by different people in this Bible fellowship class. And at Norman uh, Farrow's house, they, had a, uh, they, had a, they threw a party, a luncheon. And they brought in all the, the ladies who were homebound. Most of them in their 90s, and they brought them in. And everybody made a casserole. We had a, a big... It was like a, a, it was like a big Christmas um, and Thanksgiving kind of a luncheon. And then this tradition they've always had... Said, you get to see Santa Claus, and my friend Balarao would prove that there is such thing as an Indian Santa Claus. He would dress up in this Indi- uh, this uh, this Santa Claus outfit, and he would be in the room, and everybody's getting ready, and we're bringing the walkers over. Everybody's moving into the room, and of course, I was friends with all of them. But this one particular friend, I said to her, "Are you ready? You ready to go? You ready to go in there and and, and get whatever? I mean, they got them all kind of fun gifts and." And she said, I'm ready. She was smiling. She just had this smile that was just, you know, I mean, I, I, it was magnificent. And I said, what are you smiling at? She said, I'm smiling because this is my last Christmas. This is, uh, stop talking like that. No, no, stop. She said, no, no, no. She says, I had a hunch. I had a feeling last Christmas. But this time, she said, my doctors told me I need to make, make arrangements and make plans. And she said, it's my last Christmas. Now, being the ordained godly minister, I'm sitting there going, no, you're not. You're not going anywhere. No, stop. No, to stop talking like this. Fire the doctor. Get another doctor. You don't get a second opinion. And she said, no, no, no. I know it. And she said, uh, you know, she said, I'm 92. And she said, for 80 years, I've had the privilege of watching family in my life and show them what a Christian looks like and how they live. I can take you to the seat I was sitting in in that dining room. And she held my wrist and she said, now I get to show them what one looks like when they die. It was that moment, not in seminary, not through a sermon, that I learned the meaning of joy. Joy is what happens when you can talk about your family member who's no longer here and it's just a sense of joy. Because no matter the pain, there's something that holds you up. Nobody ever walk up to you and say, you're such a godly person. And you, you know, you think, you don't know me. Stop laughing, Ryan. Not too loud. <laughs> at me. But no, you don't know me. I don't think you know your godliness enough. you know as a Christian you're bound in him it doesn't say that he needs you it says he wants you and so in you is his love and so when a stranger or a friend that you think doesn't know you well enough says the godliness that you have in you they're probably spot on 
because we don't see it in ourselves. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I have a friend, and I could use his name because I, he, as part of his testimony, Mike Coulet, was, uh, I was in Africa on a medical trip, and he was going to, he was facing prison time. I mean, he was telling me, he's like, wanting to run in a telephone pole. He said, Jake, there's no way I can go to prison. It was one of those prayer cards someone had filled out as a, as a college student. I was reading it, and I remember thinking, uh, you know, I reached out to him, and he's like, any way you can be at court, any way you can be at court. And I said, well, yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, I'm coming in from Africa on that day. Our plane got, final lay, got into Tampa at 1230. Court hearing was at 230, and he was facing years and years of prison. Sharp USF student. A guy in my now, he's a, he's a godly guy, children, wonderful wife, incredible friend. He thought he could make a quick buck on a quick night of selling drugs. And he walked in the courtroom. I'll never forget the moment. You know, I'm just sitting there with butterflies, not know what's going on. The judge looks at him and says, I don't know why I'm doing this. But when I bang this gavel, run out of this room. Because I have no idea that I'm letting you on probation and no prison. And, you know, just did it. Walked out. Mike went out there and said, I'm going to be the best little Christian you've ever seen. And sure enough, I am a thought, well, typical courthouse conversion. Proved me wrong. Became one of the godliest men I've known. But I'll never forget a statement he made. He says, there wasn't one friend of mine that showed up. Not one. All the people that he ran with, all the people he hung with, all the people he got in trouble with, all the people that said, bro, I got your back, none of them were there. It's interesting that the word friend broken down in this scripture, and the meaning is courtroom friend. Jesus calls you that. He says, I'm the one that will be there for you when no one else will be. Abide in my love. Abide in my love. He says in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Now, Go back to verse 16. We talked about this last week. That whole name it, claim it, point it, jump on it and say, you know, health and wealth gospel is thrown out the door if you read this verse in context. It doesn't say at the end, so that whatever you ask the Father, he may give it to you. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name. It's meaning as you're praying in Jesus' name for the Lamborghini that you've named and claimed, understand that the more you get to know who Jesus is and the fact that he's the life giver of who you are, that silly prayer just simply goes away. In my name. And so Jesus has broken this down three ways. I am the vine. My father, the vine dresser. You're the branches. We're abiding in each other. Understanding, I no longer call you servant. I call you my friend. And then he goes on to the third part and he says this. 
There are people that are going to be chasing you and hunting you down. And imagine in the mind of the people thinking, you're leaving us and you're telling us to abide in you. You're leaving us and you're saying, abide in you. Like, what does that mean? And sometimes it's important for us to step back and ask ourselves, what does it mean? Dan Hobby and Ed Pappy have a class on search for significance on Wednesday. Ryan, you were, you were at, a, at the house there at night. You were telling me about the class and what it means and just how everybody's so open. You take the armor off. You just, here I am, and you explain um, who you are in your search for significance with Christ. And it was remarkable what you said. They ask a question in a group, and it's a question. If you have any training in EE or evangelism explosion or whatever, you've, you've walked with Christ long enough, you know the answer to this question. And here it is. If Jesus were to look at you and say, why should you come into my heaven, what would you say? I mean, think about that. Before you pull out the, the, the six-shooter of answers that you've had equipped since, the, since eight-year-old uh, conversion into Christianity, think about not what you're going to say because we know it's acceptance of, a son, uh, of the Son, acceptance of the cross, acceptance of the resurrection. We know what gains us entry. But think how you're going to look at him and say that. If that moment were to be that Jesus looks at you and says that. Someone who knows everything about you. This isn't the friend you talk to at work or school to simply say, this is, this is what I say. This is one who knows you gave more to your cell phone bill than you ever gave to God. This is one who knows you scrolled through more things in social media than you ever looked up as word. This is one who knows you gossiped or talked about or, or, or vilified someone more than you ever prayed with him. And he looks at you and he says that. We start to think of all the things th- I served, I did. But you're looking at the author of life, the author of your of love, the savior of your soul is right before you. How would you say it? This is why Jesus is saying, I command you, I command you that you love one another. It isn't a simple suggestion. He says, I command you to do this. You have to hold on to each other. Why would he say that? Think about it. You've got to be looking around at the other 10 men in that group if you're one of the disciples thinking, who in here is going to sell me out next? You start doubting. You start building a church. What happens? You begin to ha- you, things begin to move inside of that church. Things begin to happen. And all of a sudden you don't have that same just wonderful love that you used to have. Why? Because we see the... the we see who we are. We see the failures. We see the weaknesses. And those come out. Jesus commands us to love one another. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Stop right here. He's saying the world isn't going to hate you because of you. If you want it easy, just walk in and just be a part of everything you see. No one's going to hate you. You'll get class clown. You'll get most popular. You'll get everything you ever wanted. But to understand, when you abide in me, you're abiding in everything that comes along with it. 
I'm hated. I'm despised. I'm mocked. I'm made fun of. Jesus says, everywhere you go, you will experience what I have experienced. But I experienced to a degree and thought, why? Because the world hates me. It's going to hate you. But understanding who you're abiding with. And then it goes into verse 20. And something remarkable jumps out. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Did you catch that part again? Jesus called us a few verses ago, a friend. And now he calls us a servant. Same word for slave. How would you, Jesus, I don't get it. How would you say I'm your friend? And then how are you going to say I'm, your, I'm to be treated as a slave in the next token? What would that be like? This is critical to throw away our 21st century thinking of what the Bible should look like and understand what it does. In the 1800s, there was a massive movement to protect slavery based on looking at Scripture and saying Scripture does not abolish slavery, does not speak ill of it. As a matter of fact, if, 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 if God says there's nothing wrong with it, we should have it. That's what people were defending. Nowhere in Scripture does it say abolishment of slavery. The system of slavery in which the Bible was written was very distinct and clearly understood. Slavery had a different connotation. People knew what a slave meant to a wealthy master. If you were wealthy, you were married out of this, out of contractual agreement or out of convenience. If you had a concubine, it was for pleasure. If you had children, it was for status. It was for, um, it was for security down the road to be able to have children that would carry your name. That was it. Those closest to the wealthy master were the slave. And the people knew that. There would be slaves who were given over a time at the end of the contract, would go to a post and they would nail a hole into the ear to create a, a signal and a sign to say, I'm a slave for life. You have to look at the, there were people who were asking to be in slavery. It was out of the slave culture that the master found the most trusted individuals. You remember reading in Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king was not the wife. He didn't trust her. Who was it? Nehemiah was a slave. You look at scripture, you continually look at the role of the slave in which they were given over for protection. They were given over for counsel. These were, the, these were slaves who walked into a room and knew what the master looked like without the cloak. These were the closest people that that master could have. And so this isn't a defense of slavery, ignorantly spoken of years ago. This is an identification to understand how Scripture was written to say, Jesus says this, I want you to know me the way a slave knows its master. So I think it's important we talk about what, what that means. Verse 21, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. It's a powerful verse. Everything they're going to do to you, they're going to do on account of my name. If this does not help you deal with the princes and principalities and, and, and prince of the air when you are, are offended by someone, I mean, you have people that talk ill of you. You have people that speak against you. You have people that make fun of your faith. Why? It's not directed at you. It's directed at the Father. It's directed at the very vine that you're attached to and abided with. Verse 22, as we start to close these verses out. 
Okay, verse 22 through 25. I don't feel, feel like when you, let's take a breath because if you read these too quickly, you'll miss it. We'll read them slowly, see if you can grasp it. We'll break it down in just a second. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. If you want to write something down here, if you want to peg, Jesus is quoting two pieces of scripture, Psalm thirty-five nineteen and Psalm 69, 4. That's what he's quoting, hating me without a cause. Go back to verse 30, or I'm sorry, 24 if you could. Watch this. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. A great illustration of this would be when Jesus healed the blind man. He healed this one particular blind man. The Pharisees gathered around. They saw a a man whose eyes had never seen all of a sudden opened and seen. The Pharisees would know that only the Messiah could bring sight to the blind. And the Pharisees still did not believe. Jesus looks at him and says, you had somewhat of an excuse before. You were ignorant. And now you're arrogant. Now you have seen scripture fulfilled and you still don't believe. This is throughout scripture. You constantly see people saying, show us a sign, show us a sign. The Pharisees brought up a man with a withered hand just to arrest Jesus on a Sabbath and said, show us a sign and do something. After they'd seen a dead person raised, after they'd see, uh, seen a blind person given sight, a deaf person here, a lame start to walk, the arrogance of saying, give us another sign. You saw in the Old Testament where there's been times of God just give us a sign. All throughout scripture, there is this insatiable desire to want to see one more thing. That, my friends, that has to come to an individual point of saying, I know that I have seen things and experienced things that only God could do. At the end of the day, I have to ask myself, what is enough? How much more entertainment do I, how much more pruning, how much more desiring the fact of that God can do something to me to, to show me who he is. At the end of the day, the ignorance has to drop and the arrogance rises up. And Jesus says, they have no excuse. For those who do not know Christ, Jesus is pursuing you. Not for chastisement. Not to wither you away and break you away like a dead branch and throw you away. But to abide in you. To show you love and true friendship like you've never experienced before. But for those of us who know him, he still pursues us. There was a, a scripture, and I close with this one, I have the Lord's table. There was a scripture that may not hit you like it hit me. Have you ever had scripture just, it hits you? And you go back to look at it, you're like, what was I thinking? 
Well, it wasn't you thinking it was the Lord. It was you abiding in the Lord. And he, he's a life giver. Remember, there's scripture he makes just come alive. This scripture blew me away. I mean, not blew me away intellectually. Like, oh, wow, this is a great epiphany. Emotionally, I looked at it and my heart just broke. God had created this beautiful earth, this beautiful planet, and beautiful creation, and gives over mankind. And Adam and Eve, who he would walk with and talk with and engage with and speak to. In chapter 3 of Genesis, in verse 8 and 9, it said, When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here it is. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I think about being a child and looking for my parent in a mall and they're not there. And that feeling of, where are you? The feeling of anticipation of someone that you love coming to see you and they can't make it. Where are you? To think of the author of life, the God of everything we know. In the same voice and text here, it says to you individually, where are you? Not angrily chasing against the wind, not looking for discipline. He was looking for you. He was looking for your company. Because he wanted it. And he desires it. What an incredible God we have. Then we come to today and we have a Lord's table. And to think in what he paid for so much we're given an opportunity to opportunity to appreciate so easily a cracker and a small cup of juice and a disposable cup meant to remember remember what a sacrifice that proved there is no greater friend than this one who will lay down his own life to come for you and me Pastor Jack, thank you. What a great great text to move from the preaching of the word into the celebration of the Lord's table at this moment. And I don't want to lose the the setting and the emotion and and, uh, the experiencing of the text in this moment as well. But if you think about what uh, we've just heard and Pastor Jake's message to us, we, we come to the Lord's table this morning out of this context of John 13 through 15. And here, again, just being reminded that Jesus is meeting with his disciples in this upper room. It's a very intimate setting. It's a very close moment. It's a time where, where he is serving them. They are hearing from him. He is preparing them. So we come as a family, just like in a sense they did. We come as a family, born brought into existence by the gospel, by the good news of Christ's work. Of course, they were at that moment on the front end of it. 
And Jesus was telling them, this is what I'm going to be doing. And now we sit on the backside of that with great joy and, and uh, confidence. We are the children of God by faith in Christ. Our faith have a, has a definite location. Our faith is located in the finished work of Christ for us. We don't just believe in something out there. We believe in something very specific. And that locus, that location of our faith is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His eternal nature, His death, His burial, His work. We come like children filled with gratefulness. Uh, You can't read a text like John 15 and not just be filled with gratefulness for the God that we belong to. We come aware of our own sinfulness. We come thankful, deeply thankful for His mercy and His grace. We come like children, secure in the love of God, determined to abide in Christ and resolved to live out the commands of Christ. And as Pastor Jake mentioned, we come partaking of two simple elements. Isn't it amazing? Here is a deeply you know, profound, theologically driven, rooted practice. And it involves two simple elements. It involves a wafer and a cup of juice. Unleavened bread and juice. And the men are going to come right now and they're going to distribute the elements. And we invite you to come and participate with us in this beautiful celebration of the Lord's table. We come and invite you as a son and daughter in faith in Christ. And we just ask you, hold on to it just as you receive it. And then um, when we've all been served, we'll partake together. We do that simply because the scriptures direct us to partake and proclaim together. And there's a sense of preaching that's going to go on here when we partake together. We're preaching corporately as a body of believers, as a group of individuals. We're saying, Hey, with all my brothers and sisters in this room, I have received Christ as my Savior. I'm living in light of His amazing work for me. And together I proclaim it and celebrate it. So as you get the wafer and the juice, just hold it and come before the Lord. Thank Him for it. Deal with whatever you feel like you need to deal with in this moment in terms of maybe a broken relationship with a friend or a family member. Take a moment just to confess whatever you feel like you need to confess before the Lord. Take a moment and thank the Lord for the forgiveness available to you through the work of Jesus.
desires to participate. Looks like we've got to everyone. So you have two simple elements in your hand. One reminds you of the body of Christ that was given for you. The other reminds you of the blood of Christ that established the new covenant, provided forgiveness of sins and the redemption that uh, we all enjoy in this moment. So let's partake together and celebrate that work of Christ for us. Father, we come before you just grateful for the simplicity of this ceremony, the simplicity of this ordinance. Simple beauty, we could say. It's a beautiful reminder, so deeply rooted in, in the theology and the theme and the, and the message of the Scripture. And Father, with John 15 before us, in the context of John 13 through 17, in this conversation that the Lord Jesus had with His disciples, Father, we rejoice in what Christ teaches us in this passage of Scripture. Father, it is our desire to abide in You. We rejoice in the fact that You have called us Your Son, a friend. You've used a multitude of intimate terms to identify who we are in relationship to You. We love You. We thank You. By Your grace, help us to abide in Your Word. Help us to proclaim the Gospel. Help us to live out the Gospel. Help us as Creekside Church to be truly a Gospel-centered church family with great influence across this Tampa Bay area. Thank you, Father, for calling us into existence, not only individually, but corporately, giving us life as a church. We thank you, Father. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.